Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to episode number 908 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. As you probably know, the Wicked Library relies on the support of our patrons and members to keep making the show. If you want to be a part of helping us keep making it, sign up today at patreon.com forward slash wicked library or at thewickedlibrary.com. We truly appreciate your help in making the show sustainable. Our supporters do get wicked fun rewards like access to our archives, ad-free shows, and more. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and we do love hearing from you. Today's episode features a story by an author appearing for the first time on our show, Krista Carmen. Telling our story today is one of our favorite returning storytellers, Heather Thomas, who gets a little help at the end from the brilliant Erica Sanderson. It's always wicked fun to have both of these ladies on the show. Today's score and the final scored story mix was provided by resident composer and our newest executive producer, Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Nico composes music for a growing number of podcasts of all types. If you enjoy his work, he has offerings on Bandcamp and is also taking on new clients. Find out more at wetalkofdreams.com. And please, if you enjoy the stories you hear on the show, do find the work of the authors and buy their work it keeps them making more. You can learn more about everyone who helped create today's show, along with links to their other work, on their bio pages at thewickedlibrary.com. As I mentioned in the last episode, we are hard at work on our first written anthology for The Wicked Library. If you heard my recent interview with Nelson, you know some of the featured authors are Jessica McHugh, Pippa Bailey, Mike Pilgrim, and Kelly Perkins. And I'm going to slowly reveal the names of our other contributors in each episode. This week, I'd like to reveal that one of our other fan-favorite authors, Sebastian Bendix, will have a story in the anthology. And it is a great one. Now, without further ado, let's get wicked.
Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge by Krista Carmen From Kimberly Fairhurst Date Monday, May 5th, 2008 at 10.31 a.m. Subject Reply Are you there yet? To Carrie Cusa Care We made it. The flight was relatively painless. I nabbed a seat by myself, so I read and slept without having to suffer through small talk with anyone. I can't believe I'm here. No, I can't believe I'm here and you're not. I'm glad you like your new position, and I know you said that you're over the bullshit, but it still sucks. You left two months before Centennial okayed a trip for the whole group to travel to the UK. We should have been on this trip together. Just so you know, none of the analysts will even look at Brent since he took the job. He may have won, but he didn't play fair. And what goes around comes around. Clichéd as that may sound. I hope I didn't upset you by bringing it up. I just wanted to let you know that he's already reaping what he sowed within the group. And I can't imagine his reception will be any better with the UK colleagues tomorrow. Our three-day meeting starts then, after which I have Thursday and Friday off for sightseeing. Saturday, we fly back to the States. Sunday, you and I are having brunch to catch up. The hotel is in Canterbury a 20-minute drive from Sandwich. From what I could see from the taxi, there are dozens of shops and cafes to check out. We're going out to lunch as soon as everyone gets settled, so I should unpack at least a few things. And freshen up. I'll write more later. Miss you already. Much love, Kim. From Kimberly Fairhurst. Date. Monday, May 5th, 2008, at 9.23 p.m. Subject. Reply. Are you there yet? To Carrie Cusa. Care. Did you read my email from earlier today? You're five hours behind, so you should have gotten it by now. Whatever time it is there, it's bedtime here. I have to combat this jet lag and get some rest before tomorrow. You know how I said the meeting was Monday through Wednesday? Only colleagues on the extended leadership team have to attend the second half of the third day. So, I'll have another afternoon to go exploring. I promise to push Brent into the Thames, if an opportunity presents itself. I hope you don't mind I'm going to email you with the same frequency I would if it was any other work week. I expect the same from you. So, right back, woman. XO. Kim. P.S. Have the U.S. papers been covering a story out of Kent over the past 24 hours of a 14-year-old girl who hanged herself as a result of some suicide cult romanticized by an emo rock band she admired? It's a circus here because of it. Protesters are demanding that the band make a statement... Hundreds of kids dressed in black, holding posters to support the emo culture. It's been impossible to ignore. 
The story's on the cover of every newspaper, and every television in the hotel lobby has been tuned to the coverage. Anyhow, I was curious if you'd heard anything about it. Good night. From Kimberly Fairhurst. Date, Tuesday, May 6, 2008, at 6.01 p.m. Subject, UK Update. To Carrie Kuza. Carrie? Look who finally got around to writing back. I shouldn't tease. I'm grateful for the pictures of Monty Katso. And that you're pet-sitting for me in the first place. I hope you remembered his little overnight bag. You know from whence he takes his name. The Count will exact revenge on you if he feels his treatment has been unjust. <laughs> on a darker note, I saw Larry today. I don't know how I'd convinced myself that I wouldn't run into him while we were here. Care. It's awful. Having to watch the whole team fawn over him. When he smiles, all I can see is my sister's bruised and bloodied face. When he shakes someone's hand, I see his hands wrapped around my sister's throat. I know she said she would press charges, but it's been two months already, and she insists she needs more time. Shannon also swears she doesn't blame me, but if I hadn't asked her to meet us for drinks that night, she would have never met that abusive piece of shit in the first place. As much as I want to see him punished, part of me wishes he'd apply for the new position and transfer to the UK permanently. At least, there'd be less of a chance of him hurting her again. He could have killed her, and she's too traumatized to go to the police, so he's walking around like master of the universe, sniffing out his next victim. I should get ready for dinner, but I haven't filled you in on the latest with Megan Martin. She's the girl I told you about yesterday. The news broadcasts continue to cover her death around the clock. And today, they released the information that it was her mother who found the body. Megan's friend had been visiting, and after she left, Mrs. Martin realized that the same song, some morbid thing about death and graveyards, had been playing on repeat for over an hour. She went upstairs to check on her daughter, Megan had poisoned herself before stepping off her desk with a makeshift noose around her neck. I don't know how that poor woman will ever recover. It's sad how committed she was to ending her life, but also a little strange. If a 14-year-old girl was motivated to kill herself because her favorite band wears black and sings about death, she wouldn't exactly have the courage of her convictions, would she? It makes more sense if she'd taken a modest amount of sleeping pills and called 911. You know, a suicide attempt. That way, she'd have the respect of the emo community, if that really is what they're all about. But she'd also have her life. Blame it on the dullness of the meeting today. 
but Megan's story has really grabbed me. The band at the center of the controversy released a statement that while their music may be rooted in the darker aspects of the human experience, it no more glamorized death than did the tragedies of Shakespeare. They also expressed their condolences to the girl's family, which I thought was good of them. Have you looked up the story online yet? I was going to send you some links, but I was supposed to be downstairs for dinner five minutes ago. Gotta run. Kim. From Kimberly Fairhurst. Date, Wednesday, May 7th, 2008, at 9.46 a.m. Subject, UK Update. To Karikuza. I wish I'd thought to have Verizon change my plan while I was here, so I could call you without it costing a fortune. It appears I'm to get my wish, because not only did Larry apply for the senior analyst position, they announced last night that he got it. Lawrence Brockmeyer will be moving to the United Kingdom within the month. Believe it or not, that's not the most interesting thing I'm writing to you about. Candace knew I was upset that Larry will likely skirt responsibility indefinitely for what he did to Shannon. So she offered to stay out with me to have a few drinks. We went to a bar across from the restaurant called Seven Stars. It was empty, except for a group huddled around a table in the corner. Candace's plan to get me drunk enough to forget my worries backfired, since Drew Dalton had tagged along and was going on and on about how excited he was for Larry to be in the sandwich office and how he couldn't wait to buy the guy a drink. Candace was a saint, drawing the idiot into another topic of conversation while I guzzled my drink and tried not to cry. The group in the corner had dispersed, but a somber-looking woman drifted over to the bar and slid onto a stool a few seats from my own. I said hello, and made some stupid comment about it being okay that I was drinking on a weeknight because I was on vacation. She asked me where I was from, and when I told her, she said that it was okay that she was drinking on a weeknight because her sister was dead. I almost fell off the bar stool. My face burned, and I stammered out an apology. It's fine, she said. It's not like we haven't been reminded of it every waking hour with all the media coverage. Her words penetrated the fog of a brain already hampered by too much alcohol. But I said nothing, rationalizing that the probability of finding myself next to Megan Martin's sister was too unlikely. Have you seen the coverage of the 14-year-old suicide victim? She asked. Despite my voyeurism over the past two days, or maybe because of it, I played dumb. I heard some hubbub on the street this morning. Was as much as I admitted to. She sighed in a forlorn, exhausted way, and I wondered if I should excuse myself and leave her to her grief. As I tried to get the bartender's attention, the woman took a swig of beer, 
clanked the bottle down on the bar top and said, You're from America, so you wouldn't sell my secrets to the Daily Mail, would you? I looked at her, taken aback, and she said, I'm sorry. I don't know how I'm going to come to terms with this if I don't talk to someone about it. She reached out to shake my hand, told me her name was Rachel Martin. I introduced myself, said that I wished I was meeting her under different circumstances. She let out a humorless bark of laughter. <laughs> Here you said you were on vacation. I'm sure you were dying to be cornered by someone whose idea of an icebreaker was to tell you their sister was dead. I gestured to Candace and Drew, who moved to a high top at the center of the room, engaged in what looked like a heated debate. I won't be missed, I told her. I got some bad news myself this evening. Nothing to rival your tragedy, but if you're looking for someone to whom you can relay your troubles, I'd be happy to listen. She sipped from her beer again, and looked as if she might cry. Then, she shook herself, signaled the bartender for another drink, and began to tell her story. Megan was angst-ridden, but no more than your average teenager. Her obsession with the macabre always seemed innocent. A personality quirk, more than a propensity for self-harm or Satanism. The bartender took her empty beer bottle and set a fresh one down in front of her. We went through her room yesterday. Found all the things we dreaded finding. The things the papers are saying that parents of the kids interested in these suicide cults should watch out for. A Ouija board. Tarot cards. Black candles. And a book about witchcraft. Black everything. Black clothes. Black jewelry. Black combat boots. Makeup she must have hidden from my mother. Bone white face powder and black lipstick. She must have put that stuff on after getting to school. Because while my mother had seen her in heavy eyeliner, she wouldn't have let her out of the house looking like Morticia Adams. I smiled and she went on. We found dozens of CDs. My Chemical Romance was her favorite. We also found her journal. She paused. Before I realized what was happening, she was crying hard enough for tears to have soaked the collar of her blouse. That's what I don't understand, she exclaimed. From her journal? Meg didn't seem depressed at all. Sure, she wrote some dark shit, what she imagined her funeral would be like, and if the boy she had a crush on would miss her if she was gone. A seance she performed with her friends. I skipped most of that. Which of her black dresses she thought she looked the best in. It was all so... playful. Experimental. It was darkness, suffused with hope. Rachel picked up her beer and set it down again without drinking. We were both quiet for a long time. Finally, bereft, she said. I could have it all wrong. 
Maybe the fascination had become an obsession. Maybe all those images of death had warped her mind. Her sadness was like a living thing. I wanted to comfort her, which is what I was probably going for when I said, I used to work at a substance abuse facility. At first, it was rewarding, and I threw myself into the work. But sometimes a patient who was doing well, whose drug screens were clean, well, sometimes I'd get pulled into my supervisor's office and given the news that they'd overdosed and died. I don't know why I told her this, Care. I couldn't stand her grief. Couldn't stand picturing Megan's room full of dried flowers and black candles, the dichotomy of the hopeful journal ramblings and her death. And I just blurted it out. You worked at a drug dependency clinic? Rachel asked, curious. I told her I had. That it was years ago now, practically in another life. I guess those trips to my supervisor's office affected me more than I realized. Because I switched careers completely. I work for a tech company now. Rachel didn't seem to be listening. Did you go to school to become a counselor? She asked. I told her that I had. You can work at some places in the States with a certificate, I said. But I got a degree. She was looking at me like I was going to sell her secrets to the Daily Mail after all. But as it turned out, I misjudged that look. Do you think you could look at Megan's journal? She asked, her voice suddenly filled with a terrible sort of optimism. I asked her what for. To see if you think she was depressed. To read through some of that awful seance stuff. I can't. I'm not... I shouldn't. I stuttered. Her response to that was, I don't think you realize how much the press has turned Megan's death into a circus. It's the angry God-fearing folks against the Satan-worshipping emo freaks. Any mental health professional we contacted... I wouldn't trust them not to go right to the press. You. She pointed her beer bottle in my direction. I heard Drew laugh and turned to see Candace fiddling with the jukebox. You're not even from here. You happen to be in this bar. You have a mental health license. It's expired. I broke in, determined to be clear just how unqualified I was for this task. It doesn't matter, Rachel insisted. It's not for some source for the newspaper. It's for me and my family. For our own peace of mind. I'm here on a work trip, I said quietly. I have to go back to the hotel with them. I gestured at my colleagues. Then tomorrow, she said her tone suggesting that when was the only issue left to discuss. Candace and Drew had gotten up and were shrugging into their coats. Candace caught my eye and raised an eyebrow. I nodded, stood, 
retrieved my coat as well. I... At the look on Rachel's face, her skin so pale she could have been in one of the emo music videos her sister had so adored, I stopped. Here's my card, I whispered, placing it on the bar with the money for the drinks. My cell is on there. Call me tomorrow, and I'll see what I can do. I told Candace and Drew that Rachel and I had been discussing interesting places to visit while in London. It's almost two in the morning now, and I'm exhausted, but stone-cold sober. I can't believe I ended up in the same bar as Megan Martin's sister. I can't believe she wants my help. My head is spinning, but I'm glad I got all this down. I have no idea what time she's going to call tomorrow. I hope this doesn't end up being a mistake. From Kimberly Fairhurst Date Thursday, May 8th, 2008 at 12.30pm Subject Reply UK Update To Carrie Cusa Carrie Sheesh from your email, you'd have thought I was going to summon a demon, not read a few passages of a teenager's journal. I just woke up. Good thing my agenda includes little more than sightseeing today. But Rachel hasn't even called, so stop worrying. Scratch Katzo behind the ears for me and... Oh, there's my cell now. Gotta run. From Kimberly Fairhurst Date, Friday, May 9th, 2008, at 3.15 a.m. Subject, Megan Martin. To, Carrie Cusa. I'm at the Martin's place. We're about to go upstairs so Rachel can show me Megan's journal. I'll let you know when I'm back at the hotel. Wish me luck. K. From Kimberly Fairhurst. Date. Friday, May 9th, 2008, at 3.15 a.m. Subject. Reply, Megan Martin. To Carrie Cusa. Carrie, I'm sorry I didn't answer when you called. At the time, it would have been impossible to talk. And now... I'm not sure I can put into words what happened, or what we saw. When I wrote earlier that my cell was going off, it was Rachel, calling to let me know she'd be at my hotel when the last of the reporters and news crews outside her parents' home had gone. At 8.25, I climbed into her black Volkswagen Beetle, and by the time we walked up the steep stone steps and through an unlit foyer, her parents had retired for the night. Rachel said she hadn't told them about me after all, that she didn't want to get their hopes up. They were on a bunch of medication to help them sleep, after the shock of losing their daughter. Rachel was right about Megan's obsession with black. A black rug covered the hardwood floor, and black tapestries had been hung on the walls. The bedspread was black, as were the curtains, 
The only splashes of color were three red glass roses and a black vase, red velvet ribbons tied around the bases of the lamps, and red candles ensnared by wreaths of black bouquets. Rachel stood at the center of this sea of black until I asked if I could see the journal, which she retrieved from Megan's desk, along with a framed photo. This was Megan, she said, pointing out a slight smiling teen. Those were her best friends, Joan and Piper. She handed me the black velvet notebook, held closed by a thin piece of wire ending in a delicate paper rose. I caught Rachel's eye. She nodded, so I unwound the wire and opened to the first page. Rachel was right about the journal, too. The first few entries were indicative of any 14-year-old girl. That is, until I got to the part about the seance. Rather than explain it, I'll let you experience it as I did, through Megan's words. At one point while I was reading, Rachel had to excuse herself to find a box of tissues. While she was gone, I took photos of the pertinent pages on my phone. Perhaps you will come away with a less disturbing opinion of these events than I. I doubt it. April 6th, 2008 I have to fix my makeup. I tried not to cry when that awful Bridget ripped the crucifix from my neck. It hurt, don't get me wrong, but it was more the fact that half of the last period math class saw it happen and heard her call me goth girl geek. Hayden caught me by my locker. He fixed the clasp of my necklace with his pocket knife, which was sweet of him. He left when he saw Joan and Piper coming, said that Joan always looks at him funny, but his presence in that moment made me feel less alone. Still, Helena will make everything all right. If we succeed in raising her spirit, Helena will avenge us against bullies like Bridget. Helena, whose rage at her lover's betrayal was such that her soul turned black. Helena, trapped in a revenge-fueled purgatory. Helena, the patron saint of the lost, the persecuted. We first found out about Helena from Joan's sister, Heather. Heather was friends with Helena's great-niece, who'd been bequeathed her great-aunt's brooch years after Helena's death in a car crash orchestrated by her lover. Legend had it that whoever attempted to summon Helena's spirit while possessing the brooch would be granted the revenge they sought. When Joan and Piper arrived, the first thing I did was make sure Joan had succeeded in sneaking the brooch from her sister's jewelry box. It hadn't surprised me in the slightest to learn that Joan's sister had stolen the brooch from her so-called friend. Joan could be mean, but her sister was downright ruthless. That was the moment the plan to raise Helena had taken shape. Joan grinned and held the brooch out to me. It was beautiful, but strange. Its curves and reflective surfaces caused it to appear very much alive. Like 
a gothic beetle from the underworld. We sat in a circle, and I placed my fingers on the planchette. In a voice I hoped did not waver, I said, Helena of the wronged, we three ask of thee, a sign that you are here. We ask that you provide for us only that which was denied you, a chance to navigate the world free from victimization and despair. And perhaps, should you seek it, the punishment of those who have done us wrong. Journal, I swear on everything. That planchette moved on its own. It moved like something had come up from the depths of hell to chase it. You, three, I will serve thee if only you will free me. How do we free you? I asked. Joan and Piper were shaking like trees in a hurricane, but I glared at them to keep them focused. A drop of blood from each on the mirror surface. Place the mirror beneath the board. Say my name three times. We used the brooch to prick our fingers, squeezed the blood onto the surface of my hand mirror, and placed the board atop it. We gripped one another's hands. We said her name three times. The planchette began to move so fast we could hardly keep up with what it said. I'm here anew, but not for you. The revenge you seek is not for the meek. Rather, the one whose need is more than all the others at the board. There was a sound at the window, but when we turned, there was nothing there but an overgrown tree branch scraping against the glass. Joan began to wail then, like something was burrowing into her brain. I tried to clap my hand over her mouth to keep her from waking my parents, but air, or smoke, or some sort of presence whizzed past my fingers, seemingly sucked into her throat, and I pulled back. It ended as quickly as it had begun. The planchette grew still. I tried to ask Joan and Piper what they thought it meant, that thing about revenge being for the one at the board who wanted it more, but something wasn't right. Joan's eyes were glassy, and when she looked at me, they narrowed and grew darker. 
Her expression scared me. So I smacked her in the arm and told her to quit it. She said she was tired and didn't want to sleep over anymore. She called her mother to come get her and was gone 20 minutes later. Do you think she knows Hayden asked you out? Piper said before we went to sleep. How could she? I snapped. But I wonder. Like I said, Joan can be mean. I'd hate to think of what she'd do if she discovered that not only had Hayden asked me out, but that I'd said yes. We're going to a My Chemical Romance concert at the end of May. I'm so happy I could die. I was so absorbed by Megan's journal, I hadn't realized Rachel had been reading over my shoulder. Come on, she said, and I jumped, startled at her proximity, at her breath upon my neck. She held a hand mirror up, and I stared at my pale complexion in its oval face. There was a smear at the center of it. Here, Rachel said, and handed me a metallic brooch. I started to stutter out of protest, but Rachel gave me a hard look, and the words died in my throat. My sister wasn't crazy, Rachel said. If she said those things happened, I believe her, and I need to see it for myself. Feeling chastised, and more than a little ill, I followed her to the center of the raven black rug. At Rachel's urging, I pricked my finger with the pin. Blood fell onto the mirror, drops remaining intact like languid ladybugs upon the glass. I handed the brooch to Rachel, sucking at my finger as she repeated the ritual. Rachel positioned the Ouija board over the mirror. She held out her hands. I took them, but panic welled in my throat. And I said, Rachel, maybe we shouldn't. Helena? Helena. Helena, was her reply. A sudden bang as the wind blew a tree branch against the window. It scratched across the glass, the sound as sinister as footsteps in a purportedly empty place. The air in the room grew bitter cold. Megan's CD player switched on and began playing from the bookshelf. Rachel pulled my hands down until my fingers came to rest on the planchette next to hers. The glass-eyed piece began to move, whip-fast, but I was hawk-eyed in my terror. I'm here anew, but not for you. The revenge you seek is not for the meek, rather the one whose need is more than any other at the board. Rachel's face was bloodless, 
but she had the wherewithal to say, What happened to my sister? She asked you for revenge against those that harmed her, and you did nothing. She took her own life. How can you call yourself the patron saint of anything? I am saint of nothing. Patron of no one but myself. As the planchette flew, I saw movement from the other side of the room. When I looked up, there was... God, Carrie, there was something at the window. Something I think I will go mad for having seen. It was a woman. Perhaps she was Helena. Perhaps she was something older. Darker. Far more terrible than any troubled teen or goth band could conceive of. The creature oscillated among many forms. A haggard witch, whose lies fell from her lips like insects shredding carapaces. Once I saw my own reflection, with fire-red eyes and sunken cheeks. For the briefest of moments, the thing at the window was beautiful. She was Megan's Helena, goddess of revenge. But then it turned its head. The lines blurred yet again, and it took on what I believe to be its truest form. Eyeless, soulless, gaunt and tinged with blood, its odious skin and marsh nest hair were still not the worst thing about it. The creature raised its hands, the strings of marionettes held in its long clawed fingers. The puppets were facsimiles of the three girls from the photo Rachel had shown me. Megan, Joan, Piper. The strings jumped. The Joan puppet offered the Megan puppet a vial of something liquid. The Megan puppet drank, fell limp. Joan tossed a noose around Megan's neck. The creature yanked the string. The Megan puppet hanged. I gasped. Rachel, watching the same drama unfold, cried out. I grant revenge for the one who desires it most. A horrible shriek sounded inside my head. I looked to the window again. The vengeful siren opened its mouth, so wide I felt my sanity cleave from my soul. Inside its mouth was the bloody, beating heart of the last who had sought her aid, yet whose desire for revenge had been trumped by another. Why have you summoned me? I want revenge, Rachel said. I want revenge against the girl who killed my sister. I begged Rachel to think about what she was saying. You saw what that thing can do, I pleaded. 
She's no saint. She is a witch, a charlatan, and she'll bring you to your ruin. The thing at the window brought its hands up and hissed. It drew one filthy claw across the tops of the strings and the three marionettes, one with a gaping hole in its chest where its heart should have been, fell away. Remember, I grant revenge for the one who desires it most. For one torturous moment, the shriek in my head grew louder. Then, as if someone had pressed mute, the shrieking stopped. The view beyond the window was clear. The planchette lay on its side, motionless. We didn't talk much after that. I tried to ask Rachel how she was going to feel if some horrible fate befell her sister's friend, but she refused to discuss it, so I let it go. I suddenly felt very tired and wanted to leave more than I had at any other point in the evening. Something was nagging me. Something is nagging me, even now, nibbling at the corners of my mind. Something I'm certain is essential to take care of. The drive back to the hotel was a blur. Rachel and I said goodbye, and she thanked me. Though for what? I'm not sure. I asked her if she thought that thing was going to avenge her sister's death. Her response left me worried. But not for Megan's traitorous friend. I grant revenge for the one who desires it most, she said. That's what the board spelled out, remember? I can't imagine that wouldn't mean me. On the way into the hotel, checking my pocket to ensure I had my room key, I realized that I'd somehow left the Martin residence with Helena's brooch in my possession. It occurred to me, upon looking out my window at the nearly full moon, how strange it was that I am on the other side of the Atlantic, yet the detestable Larry Brockmire, abuser and fugitive from justice, sleeps peacefully beneath the same thatched roof. I think I'll go pay him a visit. From Inspector Valerie Stringer, Kent Police. Date, Saturday, May the 10th, 2008, at 9.45am. Subject, Pending Investigation. To Kerry Kusa. Dear Ms. Kusa, we are writing to let you know that any contact from this point forward between you and Ms. Kimberly Fairhurst could be used as evidence in Kent Police's impending investigation. If you have information as to the whereabouts of Ms. Fairhurst, or her motive in the actions taken against Mr. Lawrence Brockmayer, Please call us at plus four four one six two two six four zero seven three zero. Thank you. Inspector Valerie Stringer. Postscript. Ms. Fairhurst addressed a note to you on a piece of hotel stationery, which is how we came across your name. 
It stated that Ms. Fairhurst still felt bad about your having missed out on a job opportunity given to a Mr. Brent Young. There was a black jeweled brooch atop the note. She said she wanted you to have it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the restless spirits on the other side to contact you. 